Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.10, Valeria Messalina, A Jealous and Suspicious Mind. After last week's whistle-stop tour of the wives of Caligula, it is again time to dive into a more detailed study of an empress of Rome. And believe me... Messalina doesn't disappoint. But before we get going, I need to thank Leanne, my latest patron on Patreon. It is so great to see people still signing up to support the show, and I can never thank all of you enough. I truly don't deserve your kindness and generosity. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half. We are around halfway on the first First Ladies of Rome, the first series of the other half podcast. While there is still plenty to talk about and fascinating women left to cover, it's not too early to start thinking about the next season. When we approach the end of this season, I will be putting up some ideas for topics for the next series for my patrons to vote on. But before we get to that, I would love it if you all, patrons and non-patrons alike, got in touch with your suggestions. As a guide, these topics need to have enough sources in English for me to be able to do the research and have enough women to cover to make it worth doing, but, you know, not too many. For example, suggesting that I cover every First Lady of the United States is a bit of a stretch, but just asking me to cover Martha Washington is a little narrow. I'm not promising I'll choose the most popular choice, but I will read every one of your suggestions. You can get in touch with the show via the Facebook and Twitter pages, or by email at theotherhalfpodcast at gmail.com. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. As I've been doing this podcast, it has become quickly apparent that all empresses of Rome in this period, at least those who are around for more than about a second, tend to be portrayed in one of two ways. The first is the conniving manipulative type, who murders her child's way to the top. This is the image of Livia in many of the sources, and, as we'll see, is also the predominant view of Agrippina. The second is as an immoral nymphomaniac, 
who will basically screw any man she sees. Sezonia fits this profile, as do, outside of the category of Empress, Julia and Lavilla. Valeria Messalina kind of fits into both categories. No other Empress in this period has the reputation that Messalina has. She is castigated constantly for her ambition, jealousy and loose morals. She is portrayed as essentially having slept with the entire Roman establishment and having corrupted her fellow Roman wives into following her depraved example. She is quite the historical character, and some of the quotes that I'll be reading to you in this mini-series on her life are corkers. But to what extent is she just that? A character? A useful moral lesson utilised by historians after the fact to show the evils that can occur when someone steps outside the bounds of true Roman virtue? How much of this image of the conniving, ambitious, sex-crazed whore is accurate? Something that separates Messalina from the other two famous empresses of this period, Livia and Agrippina, is that there is not a huge amount written about her. When writing about Livia, I had quite a few biographies to work from, and it's the same with Agrippina. Moreover, since they were around for longer, came from more august families, and had a greater impact on history, they tend to be dealt with in greater detail in other works covering the period, such as biographies of the respective husbands and sons. As we shall see, Messalina did not have these advantages. She doesn't even have a proper biography. Therefore, we have to piece together her life from snippets in the ancient sources and mentions in works that concentrate on other characters. That said, there's plenty to say about her. I've divided the story of Messalina into two parts. This episode will give a lot of the background on both her life and that of her husband Claudius, and then look at her early acts as empress, focusing on her maternal and political ambitions. Next week, we will then get into the really juicy stuff, her scandalous love life and her downfall. Alright, I reckon that's enough build-up, let's get going. Messalina was not the first wife of Claudius. Before he became emperor, he had been married and divorced twice, both times in matches organised by influential relatives for their own ends. Claudius was the black sheep of the Julio-Claudians. He has come up a few times in our story so far, as he has been around since the early days of Augustus's reign, and has been near, but still very much adjacent, to the action for many of the episodes of this series. Therefore, let's bring you up to speed and briefly go through his career before coming emperor after the assassination of Caligula. He was born in 10 BCE to Livia's son Drusus and Augustus's granddaughter Antonia. After his father died shortly after he was born, Claudius and his siblings Germanicus and Lavilla were brought back to Rome. We know comparatively little about his childhood, but all the snippets that we do know speak to a boy hidden from sight. When Roman boys meet manhood, there was a great ceremony where they were given their big boy toga and entered into society. Most of the time, this was a very grand occasion. Claudius's took place late at night when no one was about. When games were held in honour of Drusus, Claudius, despite being one of the organisers of the event, was hidden behind a shroud. His own mother is reported to have called him, quote, a monstrosity of a human being, one that nature began and never finished. Who says that Roman mothers were heartless? It is hard to diagnose someone from two millennia in the future, but it appears that Claudius had some form of cerebral palsy. He had the tendency to shake uncontrollably, 
and had a weakness or even partial paralysis on his right side, unable to do very much with his right hand, and tended to drag his right leg. Along with this, he had a quiet, cracked voice, and had the tendency to slobber and snarl when angry. None of this affected his mental faculties, as we shall see, but this did not stop his relatives dismissing him as a stupid, worthless embarrassment. Let's not forget that at the time, handicaps, particularly mental and physical ones, were viewed as weaknesses. It wasn't seen as being something that a boy would be unfortunate to have. It was his fault. It was a sign of being cursed by the gods. This was why he was not even considered for the imperial throne after the deaths of Augustus and Tiberius, despite him being, by birth, extremely qualified. Instead, he was shunted aside and spent most of his time in quiet scholarship, trying his best to lay low. Given the eventual fates of many of his relatives, his very handicaps may have saved his life. While he was the black sheep of the Julio-Claudians, he still had their noble blood in his veins. Through his parents, he could trace a direct line back to Augustus and Livia, and that alone still gave him value as a marriage chip. While his handicaps dropped him down the division or so in the pecking order, it wasn't that hard to find a wife eager to marry such a well-connected young man. That said, Claudius is a man who did not exactly have luck with the ladies. The first woman that he was betrothed to ended up becoming persona non grata thanks to a scandal involving her parents. Fiancé number two, the daughter of a friend of Tiberius, sadly died on the wedding day. But it was third time's the charm, kinda, in 9 CE, when he married Claudia Ogelinilla. Now those of you who have been paying attention, I'm sure, are scratching your heads right now, wondering when you've heard that name before. She was the granddaughter of Plautia Ogulania, the arrogant, entitled friend of Livia's who got entangled in a feud with Piso. Her father was a mate of Tiberius, and so this was yet another one of those matches designed to make close friends into family members. The marriage ended in 24 CE, when Claudius divorced her due to, in the words of Suetonius, quote, her scandalous lewdness and the suspicion of murder. These are charges that we thrown at his other wives, so it's important to take a quick look at them. But sadly, the sources are very vague. But it seems that she was sleeping with a freedman named Bota, possibly others, and that they had a child together. That alone would be grounds to divorce and disgrace. But there was also a suspicion that she was involved in the death of her sister-in-law, though no charges were ever brought. Four years later, Claudius married for a second time. This was during the reign of Tiberius, and in the midst of the ascendancy of Sejanus. Her name was Aelia Paetina, and she was a kinswoman of Tiberius's Praetorian prefect, though not an especially close one. She was from a very noble family, and wealthy in her own right, thanks to her owning, amongst other things, a pottery farm. They had one child together, Claudia Antonia, a year after their marriage, but otherwise we know little about it. They divorced after 10 years of marriage in 38 during the reign of Caligula. The reasons for this appear to be purely political, as it seems that the two of them had a fairly happy marriage. Indeed, Suetonius states that he divorced her for, quote, slight offences. Historians differ on what these slight offences might be, as it depends a lot on who you believe and when you believe the divorce took place. 
Some say it was her family falling from grace what did it, linking it back to the execution of her brother in 31. But others say it was because a new woman had appeared on the block, who offered more advantages to Claudius than she. That woman, of course, was the subject of this miniseries, Valeria Messalina. Okay, now that we have caught up Claudius, let's introduce the woman of the hour. She was born in the late 10 CE. Her father was a former consul and was related through his mother to Octavia and was therefore part of the extended Julio-Claudian family. He died shortly after she was born, though. Her mother, Domitia Lepida, was also the daughter of a consul and also related to the Julio-Claudian family, again through Octavia. She was an exceedingly wealthy woman, and after her first husband died, she remarried twice. Remember her, she will be turning up again. This impressive pedigree was a tremendous asset for Messalina's marriage hopes, and she would certainly have expected to marry well when she came of age. Once again, we know pretty much nothing about her childhood, so we must fast forward to her mid to late teens, when she married Claudius in 38. He was about 30 years her senior, not an uncommon age gap, but a pretty significant one nonetheless. The marriage was of mutual benefit to both spouses. It gave Claudius a further leg up in terms of prestige, and positioned him well to succeed Caligula. He was far older than the emperor, but it was clear that Caligula's wayward behaviour was alienating pretty much everyone. So getting a high-status bride was a smart move. And even if he hadn't got his eyes on the throne, which I think is kind of likely, increasing one's prestige was usually a good thing in of itself. For Messalina, she was marrying into a senior part of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. That was reason enough. For a woman like her, marrying an older man was a savvy career move. She would likely still be young when he died and able to remarry. And with his inheritance and the motherhood of his children, her position would be aggrandized greatly. Like I said, she wouldn't have expected to become empress, though. That was a real long shot. As we all know, it was essential for Roman brides to get pregnant and produce lots of babies as soon after the marriage as possible, and Messalina did not disappoint. She gave birth to two children while married to Claudius, both early in the marriage. The first was Claudia Octavia, would have killed them to use different names, who was born a year after the marriage took place. Remember that name, because she will be an empress one day. The second was a son, who has a super long birth name, but would eventually gain the moniker Britannicus after his father's conquest of these fair isles. So, for ease, I'll just call him that from here on in. He was born in 41, just three weeks after a few Praetorian guardsmen made Claudius an offer he couldn't refuse. I told the story of the deaths of Caligula, Caesonia, and their daughter Drusilla at the end of the last episode. It was horrible, gruesome, but there is a rather amusing story that comes out of it. With danger all around him, as guardsmen and other opportunistic murderous armed men out-targeting members of the royal family and settling scores were about, Claudius did what any of us would have done, and bravely hid from sight. Tradition has him crouching, trembling behind a curtain, when a lone soldier discovered him and brought him to the Praetorian camp for his own safety. There he, and most of the rest of the guard, proclaimed him emperor, possibly to head off those in the capital who were seeking to overthrow the imperial regime and restore the republic. 
The sources differ on Claudius's reaction to this. He was a man who had spent most of his life out of the spotlight after all, and had just come to the throne thanks to the murder of his nephew. If you've studied Roman history, you will know that most emperors who come to power after an assassination tend to find a great big target on their backs. But there is little doubt that Messalina would have been absolutely delighted with her husband's new job and her own elevation to the role of empress. She had managed to secure the succession instantly by providing an obvious heir to the empire. Claudius was Rome's fourth emperor from the same extended family, and yet none of his predecessors had managed to pass the throne down from father to biological son. So many of the problems that Julio Claudians had came down to issues and uncertainties over the succession. Messalina had dealt with that instantly. Claudius absolutely doted on his son. Suetonius states that, quote, When he was still very small, Claudius would often take him in his arms and commend him to the assembled soldiers and to other people at the games, holding him in his lap or in his outstretched hands, and he would wish him happy auspices, joined by the applauding throng. Messalina, of course, had provided him that joy, and she would be rewarded for it. Messalina was showered with honours. Statues were erected in public places, and her birthday became an official holiday. After the successful campaign in Britannia, a triumph of course intrinsically linked with Britannicus, since that's where he got his name, Messalina was given honours previously only held by Livia and Caligula's beloved sister Drusilla. She was allowed to sit in the front seats of the theatre, positions reserved normally only for powerful men, and was given the use of the Carpentum, that special covered carriage only normally used by priests and vestal virgins on sacred occasions. Messalina, therefore, had tremendous influence right from the get-go. She'd secured her position, and as the mother of the heir, she was now able to become a power broker. She wanted to be the next Livia Drusilla, but she wasn't quite there yet. One of Claudius's first moves once he became emperor was to make Livia a god. If you recall, this is something that the Senate had wanted to do in the aftermath of her death, and had almost certainly been her own dying wish. But Tiberius had vetoed it, and Caligula too had refused to do anything about it. By agreeing to deify his grandmother, Claudius was reminding everyone just how much of a big deal his family was. His blood link to Augustus wasn't great, as it went through the less favoured female line a couple of times, but he was the direct descendant of Livia through his father and her son Drusus. By deifying Livia, he was making himself the grandson of a god. Another honour, if you recall, that had been conferred on Livia had been the title Augusta. This was not a title that was automatically given to empresses of Rome, but it was an honorific title of great significance, as it linked whoever had it very firmly to the legacy of the divine Augustus. Livia had gained it on the death of her husband, and no other empress of Rome had been offered it since, though only Caesonia had probably been around long enough to have been considered. Caligula had offered it to his grandmother and Claudius's mother, Antonia, but she had refused it for reasons that are unclear. She died before her son had become emperor, and probably as part of his campaign to raise his own image and lineage, Claudius gave her the title of Augusta shortly after ascending to the throne posthumously. It was understood that the title of Augusta should go to the matriarch of the family, and, as empress and mother of the heir to the throne, Messalina may well have expected to have the title conferred upon her. 
This was certainly the opinion of the Senate, who voted to give her the title after Britannicus was born. However, Claudius vetoed their proposal. There was just a little too much Republican sympathy about to make such an ostentatious show of the hereditary nature of imperial rule. It was, though, a profound embarrassment for Messalina, a great public slap in the face, and it would be one that stuck. I said earlier that Messalina wants to be the next Livia, the most powerful woman in Rome, but she had another problem. Roman society was just about able to accommodate one powerful woman at the top. It couldn't really manage two. Livia, for example, only truly rose to prominence after the retirement and later death of Octavia. She gained further influence once Augustus's daughter Julia was disgraced and exiled. In Messalina's case, her rivals also came from inside the imperial family. They were Caligula's sisters. You may remember that Agrippina and Livilla had been exiled in the wake of the discovery of the plot of the Three Daggers, the conspiracy involving them and many others to depose their brother, the Emperor Caligula. Well, now they were back, as Claudius had recalled them shortly after he became emperor. Now, I'm not going to go too much into their story, as we'll be taking a deep dive into it when we do the episodes in Agrippina, as she too is to become an Empress of Rome, but it is important to understand their position at this point. Messina had some Julio-Claudian blood, but not like Agrippina and Lavilla had. They were the daughters of Germanicus. They had the same blood as Claudius flowing in their veins. They didn't need fancy titles, a powerful husband, or commendations to elevate their status. They were born high status. This made them necessarily a threat to Messalina's personal power. Now, one course of action could have been to co-opt them, or live with the fact that she may have to cede some influence to them. But this isn't the way Messalina was wired. She wanted to be top dog, or I guess more accurately, top bitch, and to do that, she needed to show the sisters who was boss. We haven't talked much about Lavilla. In case you're confused, this was not the Lavilla who had been married to and then murdered Tiberius's son during her affair with Sejanus. No, this Lavilla was a far less controversial figure. She was married to a man named Marcus Venicius. He was a former consul and governor of Asia, which conforms roughly to modern-day Western Turkey. He was from a prominent equestrian family, and not only his father, but also his grandfather, had served as consuls. He was generally well-liked and respected. The historian Velius Paterculus, who I quoted a lot in the episodes on Augustus and Tiberius, dedicated his history to him. He had been a critic of Caligula's and was involved in his assassination. Given his high rank and powerful wife, it was whispered in some circles that Venicius could make a good replacement for Claudius when he died. Choosing an emperor from within the Julio-Claudian family was the custom for now, but it wasn't firmly established, and given how awful the previous two emperors had been, perhaps a change wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Messalina did not like these rumours one bit. Her goal, just as it had been for so many consorts before and since, was to make sure that her son succeeded his father. Britannicus had to be the next emperor. Anyone in his way, anyone in Messalina's way, would have a fight on their hands. Despite Venicius's pretensions, Lavilla was probably not that great a rival to Messalina, 
as she was childless and apparently infertile. Venetius' claim to the throne was intrinsically bound up in his association with Lavilla, but without a male heir, it was unlikely that he would have been a suitable candidate. But Lavilla was very close to Claudius, and to a jealous and suspicious mind, anything seems possible. According to Cassius Dio, quote, Messalina became enraged at her niece Lavilla, because she paid her neither honour nor flattered her, and she was also jealous because the girl was extremely beautiful and was often alone with Claudius. Messalina decided that Lavilla had to go, and so she persuaded her husband to have her banished on apparently trumped-up charges of her having an affair with the philosopher, writer and statesman Seneca the Younger. Or at least the story goes. As usual, things are a little more complicated than that. Let's start with that charge of adultery, as this is going to become a theme in the coming episodes. Adultery was seen as a very convenient way to shame, discredit, and eventually get rid of political opponents. Think of it as being like calling someone a communist during the Red Scare. For a start, it was a very believable charge. Everyone was sleeping with everyone in this period. You didn't talk about it, but everyone was doing it. Adultery was rampant, but many of the laws that Augustus set up that regulated morality were still on the books, and it was still a very dangerous thing to be accused of, particularly if you're a woman. Rumours were swirling around Lavilla. As a powerful woman, she was often seen in the company of important and influential men, especially Seneca, and so it wasn't all that hard to make a charge of adultery stick. The consensus for a long time has been the story that I just told you. The Messalina, jealous and concerned about Lavilla's rising profile, persuaded her weak husband to have her rival exiled. This image of Claudius being a good, nice, but ultimately weak-willed emperor who was too easily dominated by his wives is very pervasive, but almost certainly exaggerated. In this case, it's not entirely certain that the charges of adultery against Lavilla were fabricated by Messalina. It was certainly widely believed at the time, and often in these cases, there isn't smoke without fire. Now, this could mean that Vesselina informed on Lavilla rather than made up some trumped-up charge, but there is a difference there. Claudius was a man of his own mind, but he was definitely someone who was willing to listen and take advice. He had as much, if not more, to fear from Lavilla's husband Venetius as Messalina did, as he may have had designs on his own throne, not content to be competing to be his heir. It seems to me, then, likely that Claudius wasn't exactly bullied by Messalina into exiling his niece, but she was certainly involved in her downfall. This is shown by the fact that Seneca was not recalled from his exile until after Messalina's fall, a sign, perhaps, that it was her that was keeping away from the game. Lavilla was sent to a small island named Ventotene, off the coast of Campania, and was eventually starved to death on the orders of Claudius. A nasty end to a hard life. Having seen what happened to her sister, Agrippina wisely kept a low profile, and would not return to the action until Messalina's power began shows of waning, but more on that next week. Lavilla would not be the last political opponent that came into Messalina's crosshairs, and she was aided by a political alliance with a freedman named Narcissus. Claudius was well known for having a number of highly skilled and intelligent freedmen around him, acting as advisers and bureaucrats. He didn't trust the Senate and the old aristocracy. He didn't think much of their skills, 
and was wary of their constant plots to have him murdered. Narcissus was one of his most powerful freedmen, and was given the important job of being in charge of his correspondence. He was extremely loyal to the emperor, and always had his administration in mind when he acted. Like Claudius and Messalina, Narcissus saw danger everywhere. Thanks to Claudius's handicaps and poor reputation, the senate had become newly emboldened, and plots against the emperor were frequent. Therefore, the two of them became allies of convenience, their interests not necessarily completely aligned, but content to work together to clear the board of those hostile to Claudius. One such man was Tigellinus, a former friend and possibly flame of both Lavilla and Agrippina, who had been banished during the reign of Caligula. He was recalled from exile thanks to the general amnesty proclaimed by Claudius when he came to power. But crucially, he was not permitted to come to Rome, apparently on the orders of Messalina, who feared what might happen if he and Agrippina were to get the band back together and start plotting. Then there was Gaius Appius Silanus. He was a former governor in Roman Iberia, and was, by a curious quirk of fate, married to Messalina's mother. He had had a rather controversial career thus far. He had been accused of treason during the reign of Tiberius, but had managed to survive this after an informant bailed him out. He was also a member of a family that had quite a history of opposition to the Julio-Claudian regime, and there is also a suggestion that he had played a minor part in an assassination plot against Claudius. It is therefore not surprising that Messalina and Narcissus would have marked him out as a potential threat. Suetonius relates how they brought about his downfall. Quote, when Messalina and Narcissus had put their heads together to destroy him, they agreed on their parts, and the latter rushed into his patron's bedchamber before daybreak in pretended consternation, declaring that he had dreamed that Appius had made an attack on the emperor. Then Messalina, in assumed surprise, declared that she had had the same dream for several successive nights. A little later, as had been arranged, Appius, who had received orders the day before to come at that time, was reported to be forcing his way in, as if it were proof positive of the truth of the dream. His immediate accusation and death were ordered, and Claudius did not hesitate to recount the whole affair to the Senate the next day, and to thank the freedman for watching over his emperor's safety, even in his sleep. But not everyone believed that Messalina had helped Narcissus bring down Appius purely to protect the regime of her husband. Some suspected she had baser reasons for doing so. And Cassius Dio is one of them. Quote, The reason was that Appius had offended Messalina in refusing to lie with her, and by this slight shown to her had alienated Narcissus, the emperor's freedman. This is the first accusation of the sources accusing Messalina of sleeping around, or trying to, I guess, in this case. But, as we'll see next week, it wouldn't be the last.
it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.